Good morning, everyone. And uh, I'm Tom Nelson. In case I haven't had the joy of meeting you, welcome to the Leewood campus. And uh, unless you're colorblind like me, um, I'm wearing royal blue this morning. Thanks to my wife. Um, it's, it's pretty close, don't you think? I mean, you know, what can I say? But it's an exciting time. And uh, let's just keep cheering the Chiefs on, right? Two, don't let's never forget the Chiefs. Uh, I think there's a big game going on like soon. Uh, I'm a guy who likes cars. Uh, maybe not for the reason you think. Uh, it's not about, to me, you know, the cool factor, how cars look. It's really about the reliability factor. It's, will the car I drive get me where I need to go? That's, you know, what I'm all about. Most of you who came to church this morning probably came in a car. Either you drove or rode. Um, and just think for me, or think with me for a moment, all the people who made that possible. I mean, think about our global neighborhood that allows you to get from your home to the church on Sunday morning. There are people all around the globe who have mined the raw materials, those who transported those materials over many spaces and taken them to the factories. Those who made possible all electrical power that the factories use. Those who designed the car. Those who put that complex thing together. Then those who transported your car, those who sold you your car, I hope that's a good thing, those who marketed it, those who financed it, if that was your mode of operation, those who licensed it, those who serviced it, repair it, right? And those who maintain the roads, and yes, those who make gas possible so you can keep going. I mean, you just think about the number of people that keep you going every day. Whether it's the phone we have in our pockets, the pen that we might be using at the moment, or the very shoes we have on. Just think of the number of people that make your life and mine happen every day. Most of us do not think about the collaborative economic web we count on every day for life. Now, while this may, when you stop to think about it, amaze us, it should not surprise us because the Bible tells us that as image bearers of God, we were created to work together to collaborate, to do collaborative work every day. This is God's design. Now, when Jesus calls us to love our neighbor, what did he have in mind? This is a question we're probing. Was it more than taking your neighbor's soup when they're sick? Again, that's a good thing. But is there more here? One of the big cultural challenges, it seems to me, of our times is that many of us tend to look at life much more through an individual me lens of our own desires than an other's community lens of our responsibility. Any other cultures around the globe really get this better than we do. There are many cultural observers that have pointed out this in the American culture. David Brooks, a wonderful thinker, Robert Putnam, but it was really a uh, University of California Berkeley professor several years ago who came out with probably the best book on understanding American culture in this, in this vein. Robert Bella described in his book Habits of the Heart what he described as this self-focus that our nation is turning to as expressive individualism. What did he mean? He simply meant that more and more Americans today increasingly see the meaning and purpose of their life solely through the lens of self, self-discovery, self-gratification, 
self-expression. You could go on and on and on. It's a life primarily revolving around self. Now, perhaps the most glaring idolatry of our time is not the idolatry of sex or even the idolatry of money, but rather the idolatry of self. Could it be that our greatest challenge for the vast majority of us is to move from a me perspective to a we perspective in life? Could it be that Jesus' teaching on the great commandment to love him and love our neighbor moves us more in the direction of our community responsibility than we might ever imagine? Now, we have been, as a church family, probing this question of neighborly love in a series that we've entitled Neighborly Love. And if you've missed the last two messages or one of them, I encourage you strongly to listen to the podcast because this series is architected building on each message. All of them fit together, and I encourage you, if you missed one, to really understand a little bit more and how this fits together. Let me just briefly review, though, for the first two messages so far. The first message of the series was on Luke chapter 10 of the Good Samaritan, and we learned that neighborly love calls us to Christ-like compassion and, yes, economic capacity. Last week, we continued our series on neighborly love, and we discovered that we were designed by God before sin and death entered the world to live creative, productive, fruitful lives. And we learned specifically that to be faithful, we are also to be fruitful. And we said that the best workers make the best neighbors. Now, this morning, as we continue our series, we're going to see that neighborly love is not just a neighbor thing, it is also a neighborhood thing. In other words, loving our neighbor means loving our neighborhood. If you brought a Bible with you, turn with me to the book of Genesis chapter 2, the first book of the Bible. And I'd like to frame our thoughts in this text of Genesis 2 around three questions that are the architectural structure of our conversation this morning. First, is, first question is, what was the first neighborhood like? Secondly, why should we love our neighbors or neighborhoods? And third, how do we love a broken neighborhood? First, what was the first neighborhood like? When we come to Genesis 2, we come really to the first neighborhood in the world. It is called the Eden neighborhood. Now, our English word neighbor and neighborhood particularly means more than people if you look it up in the definition. It also means a place where people live or will live. So when Genesis chapter 1 opens, we looked last week at the original creation, and we notice in Genesis 1, and this is important as you read Genesis 1 and 2 particularly, to see that Genesis 1 is like this. From a literary standpoint, it's like a panorama, wide-angle literary lens. It looks across the vast landscape of God's creation in heaven and earth and gives us the broad picture. But in Genesis 2, the writer gives us a literary lens that's like a telephoto lens. Does that make sense? With a narrowing lens on humanity, how we fit in this integral creation and the created order. What we are going to see this morning as we come to Genesis 2 is that God designed us with a neighborhood in mind. Now take a closer look at verses 4 through 8 with me if you would. It was just read for us and I want to highlight a little of what we heard and what we see here. 
The first neighborhood of Eden was a beautiful place, stunning in its beauty, but it was also fruitful and productive. And woven into the design was a harmonious collaboration in this interdependent ecosystem. Now, God is seen here in Genesis 1 and 2 as the master architect. As a master architect or city planner, he understands what makes that environment flourish. God sees, and this text builds as he unveils his masterpiece, he sees the incompleteness of his design at this point. Notice how this is so strongly emphasized in verses 5 and 6. You will notice the three strong negations that there is no what? No plants, no rain, and no human beings. This is very intentional in the original Hebrew text. So God continues his creation masterpiece, and he brings out order, and the key word here is completeness. God creates Adam. If you look at your text, he plants a garden, and he puts Adam in the garden. That's the progress. So here in Genesis chapter 2, God designs human productivity with this interdependent ecosystem of creation. And you'll notice, as thoughtful readers and listeners, God now gives Adam a more specific two-fold job description. And if you were here last week, you know that this job description echoes Genesis 1 and what is called the cultural mandate. So here he presses more fully into how humans fit within the created order. Look at verse 15. Chapter 2, verse 15 is a hugely important verse in the text. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden, notice, to work it and to keep it. Notice this twofold job description is captured in this English phrases, depending on your translation, to work or cultivate the garden, and to keep, or another way to say it, is to protect the garden. Do you see that? This language tells us that humans are to steward or manage the neighborhood. Now, the Hebrew word translated to work is used in the Old Testament seamlessly of farmers working the ground, of craftsmen uh, crafting uh, like a workman in, a, in the tabernacle, and priests offering sacrifices in the tabernacle. In other words, this word is described as worshiping God. It's important for all of us to grasp that this word is a seamless idea that God designed us to work and worship in a seamless offering of praise to Him in all of life. In other words, we don't worship our work, right? That's idolatry. But our work is a primary means for us to worship God. God designed it that way. Now, one of the things that's helpful for us as Christians of the 21st century is to look back how Christians understood work and worship in previous generations. There was a whole segment of church history where I think we're missing something that they got right. And they would say often in their literature and in their practice, to work is to pray. Somehow I think we are missing that. Rabbi Paul, who becomes the Apostle Paul, says in the New Testament, you remember this verse, that we are to pray without ceasing. That's not just verbal muttering prayers. Paul understood that all of life was prayer, that to work was to pray. Now, I, to be very honest here, I don't tend to think of my work as a pastor as praying, and you know, I'm paid to do that, right? I, mean, I should think of it like that. But all of work 
was designed to be prayer lived out before an audience of one. So let's think about that for a moment. Tomorrow as you do your work, do you see your work as prayerful worship? Students, what about going to school tomorrow? Do you see your homework in class as prayer? That's God's design. If you study and live before an audience of one, your work is to be prayer. School, paid, unpaid. It's prayerful worship. Kids, when you play before an audience of one, God designed that to be worshipful prayer. Wow. See, that changes how we see all of life. It changes, imagine how it would be different, how you treat your fellow students or your co-workers or how you do your work differently tomorrow if you understood and I understood it was worshipful prayer. But that's how God designed it. In the first neighborhood, there is no separation between Adam's work and Adam's worship. There is no gap between Sunday worship and Monday work. Adam was created with work and productivity in mind, but notice now as we come to verse 18 in chapter 2 that Adam is created with community in mind too. Here we have in Genesis chapter 2 our first chalkboard moment in the Bible. It's, it's a literary form that allows us to say, okay, pay attention here. Something is screeching at me. Now notice verse 18. In verse 18 we read, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now what is amazing about this verse is that in chapter 1, we heard God after his each day of creation say, good, 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 it's good, it's really gooder. Got to use that language? Now we come to Genesis 2, verse 18, and all of a sudden, it's not good. You go, whoa, what do you mean? How is it possible before Genesis 3 when sin and death disintegrate God's world, how is it possible for God in his inter-Trinitarian conversation to say to himself, not good? Now, this word not good does not mean oops. Very important. It means I'm not complete yet. It's not complete yet. It's not. The frosting is not on the cake yet. We have to ask the question, when God says it's not good for Adam to be alone, what does he mean? And the text tells us. His, God's solution to the aloneness of Adam is the answer, the least the most important answer to that question. What does the text say? God says, I will make a helper that fits with him. So as thoughtful listeners and readers, the question emerges in our mind in good literature, a helper for what? The narrative of Genesis 1 and 2 answers this question not in primarily Eve having babies, but in Eve and Adam working together. This word helper in the original language is clearly primarily about work. And it is a word that is not degrading in any way. 
It is a word that points to the equal and complementary worker that God will create at Adam's side. Remember in Genesis chapter 1, we said that the cultural mandate that was last week is both about what? Procreativity and productivity. Yes, Eve will make it possible for the fruitfulness of procreativity. We see that at the end of Genesis 2 in marriage, don't we? But that's the very end of Genesis 1 and 2. The focus of the text is about Eve's contribution for productivity. That's the big idea here. Adam simply cannot fulfill the job description in the Eden garden to cultivate and keep it without help. And God prays the animals in front of Adam's like, they can't do it for me. Absolutely. Because Adam not only has a job to in the Eden neighborhood, the much bigger garden God ultimately has in mind needs help too. So within the created order, human work was designed for what? Collaboration. See, Adam and Eve are not only the first marital couple in the garden, the neighborhood, they are the first workplace dream team. That's the primary focus of Genesis 1 and 2. Do not miss that. And when God adds Eve, what does God do? He creates a collaborative economic system within the Eden neighborhood. Economics is not Genesis 3, it's Genesis 2, before sin and death enter the world. Economics are a vital part of God's creation design for human flourishing. Now, unless you think I'm going to sound like Mr. Porticalis in My Big Fat Greek Wedding, I hope you've seen that movie many years ago, <laughs> I have to do this. I cannot help myself. Okay. We get our English word, <laughs> economics, <laughs> From the Greek word, no, two words, oikos and nomia. And it, the word is literally in Greek, oikonomia. It means when you bring those two words together, household stewardship. Does that sound like Genesis 1 and 2 of work and the family and the steward of the garden? One writer, I think, says it well here. He says, economics is this. It's to care for our common home or the art of living together. How many of us would think differently about the importance and the complexity of modern economics if we first saw it as a stewardship? We have all been given by God, all of us, for caring for our common home and cultivating the art of living together in a world that is fracturing around our differences. What might the church play in helping us globally to learn to live with our differences? Notice again how family work come together here brilliantly by God's design. God designed the family and work for flourishing of this neighborhood. And when we look at broken neighborhoods, we often see, don't we, the breakdown of the family? We do. Economists tell us, and one of the leaders here is P.J. Hill, that the number one empirical factor for material poverty, get this, is relational poverty. 
specifically in our nation, evidenced in out-of-wedlock births. But we also must see that the brokenness of neighborhoods are to be seen through the lens of the breakdown of economic life as well. This came home to us this year in a great tragic time in Baltimore. The urban riots, destructive riots in Baltimore are a picture of many of our cities across the country. In the Wall Street Journal was an op-ed editorial by an urban business leader, an urban leader who wrote this article under this title to the world, My Baltimore Business Problem. This is what he said. The simplest, listen carefully, most direct way to offer hope, to discourage people, is to hire them. And then he says this. People making good wages, working at jobs they are proud of, don't destroy themselves or the place where they live. Human flourishing and economic flourishing, according to the biblical text, go hand in hand together. Good neighbors make good neighborhoods. And good neighborhoods make good neighbors. Of course, today in our modern economy, with all its diversity and complexity, there are all kinds of complex dynamics. But God's design for the goodness of work collaboration still remains at the heart of flourishing economics and flourishing people and flourishing neighborhoods. See, God designed work and the goodness of work to collaborate together as people. Now, we have a free market system in our nation and much of the West. It's anything but perfect, of course. But I believe that the best and perfect system we have is free market. We could unpack a lot of this, but the free market system has been really effective in several areas. One is lifting millions of people, about a billion in the last two decades, out of poverty around the globe. Also raising standards of living around the globe. Also encouraging amazing technological innovation. But I think it's fair to say it's also led to growing economic disparity for many. And at times has not been good steward of the environment. See, economic life in our world is messy. It's imperfect. And this should pain us, but it should not surprise us. Because the harmonious collaborative work God designed for us to do is targeted by Satan's hellish fury. In a world of satanic influence and seeming an infinite number of human desires and sinful brokenness for all of us, Economic systems seek ways to exchange things and allocate things in the midst of all this mess. One of my favorite economists is African-American Thomas Sowell. And he defines economics, I think, the best of any economist. He says it's simply the allocation of scarce resources with alternate uses. I like to think of it this way, because I'm simple. I like to think of economics as like police officers. <laughs> you know, when the... Stoplight goes out in your intersection. It's just mass chaos. So an officer shows up and directs traffic. 
so there are not crashes on a busy intersection and the people can go their way orderly and get to where they need to go. That's a picture of economics and economic systems. In today's modern economics, we have all kinds of incentives. We have the allocation of resources through things and services, and we have exchanges like money, all kinds of ways we do it. But economics is a complex discipline, no question. Some of the brightest minds in the world focus on this. But at its core, it's this. Listen carefully. It's a vast, interconnected, and independent web of collaboration. It is how we primarily express neighborly love to those around us and, yes, our neighbors around the globe. It's primarily how we honor others, serve, and add value to them. So here in Genesis 2, we see this picture of an entrepreneurial God who sovereignly launches an uh, entrepreneurial enterprise with great risk. Look at Genesis 3. God doesn't hold humanity's hand, but instead he gives Adam and Eve this job description along with all the raw materials, and he says to them basically, get to work. And he says, get to work together. Now, of course, Genesis 2 is not where we live. Genesis 3, this neighborhood changes, and so do the neighbors. God's perfect design is shattered. Contribution and collaboration are diminished. And it's not Mr. Rogers' neighborhood anymore. It's not a beautiful day in the neighborhood, nor are our neighbors very beautiful anymore. So in Genesis chapter 3, understand how Genesis 1 and 2 fit perfectly into this progression. We now see in Genesis 3 both what? Human procreativity and human productivity diminished. In Genesis 3, we see there's pain in childbirth. We also see human productivity has thorns and thistles. Work is hard. It's toilsome. You know what it's like in the office. It's not just a work zone. It's a war zone. Because no matter where we live today, we all are broken and we live in broken neighborhoods. Every neighborhood. No matter how pedicured it is or how our lawns are pedicured. And I like nice lawns in my suburban neighborhood. But listen, I were reminded with a lot of pain not too long ago how broken our neighborhood is. Um, we have a 20-year-old home. And uh, this is therapeutic for me. So I just want you to know I included this. This is therapy, okay? We decided we better have our windows replaced. So we had a wonderful contractor, great business people, and they came out and did all that. And then they said this to us. There may be more work to do when they pull out the old windows. We held our breath and our wallets. <laughs> sure enough. Unbelievable. When they pulled the windows out, they found massive damage even in the structure of the walls. Our home was built only 20 years ago, and they said, Mr. Nelson, you know, when they give you bad news, they say Mr. Nelson. They said, this was constructed this way. Uh, the whole front of our home was dismantled in front of our neighbor's eyes. It was really amazing. <laughs> the whole windows had to replace, the studs, basically 
the entire front of our house. Because shoddy work, and I would add fraudulent work, was done and covered up. This is the neighborhood we live in. So why should we love our broken neighborhoods? Why should we care? There are many reasons, but fundamentally because God loves broken neighborhoods. The writer of the Gospel of John tells us that Jesus moved into this broken neighborhood. He loved it so much in John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory of the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus beckons us to follow him in pursuing the common good where he has placed us, but also sharing what isn't common, and that's Jesus. Yes, the power of the gospel transforms neighbors and neighborhoods, and it paves the way for redemptive collaboration. And so we embrace common grace for the common good, for proclaiming the uncommon good, which is Jesus Christ and the glory of God. Jesus speaks that we are to be salt and light in his great sermon on the mount, and he says basically that it is through our work, not just works, through our work is what the text teaches the good collaborative work we are called to do every day, Jesus says, that's how the world knows who I am and what I'm about. Both our collaborative work and our gracious words are gospel witness. So how do we love our broken neighborhoods? Let me suggest some application of reflection for us as we build to the end of this message. First is embrace a posture repentance. All of us contribute to the brokenness of our world in every dimension, spiritually, socially, mentally, economically. Don't you love how British essayist G.K. Chesterton was just absolutely brilliant? One of the writers of, um, of a newspaper in Britain asked him to write an essay on what's wrong with the world. It's a classic response. G.K. Chesterton wrote back two words, I am, I am. That's exactly right. It's part of a free market economic system, whether we are materially poor or materially richer. It does not matter. All of us in some ways are complicit, both on an individual level and a systemic level, in not loving our neighbor as we should. For some, it may be bilking the government system by faking disability. You know what a rampant fraud dynamic that is in our country right now? It's unbelievable. Or maybe it's creating questionable tax shelters that are very gray or cheating on our taxes. Maybe exploitative business practices like predatory lending. Maybe investing in socially irresponsible businesses that you know extract value rather than add value to a community. Or we may support through our taxes or donations organizations that harm the unborn. Or we may have an attitude of entitlement we just shop away our boredom and anxiety, ignoring our responsibility to serve others in the world. All of us need a posture of repentance here. Secondly, we need a holistic approach in the neighborhood. It's important for us to look at a broken neighborhood holistically, to see both poverty and potential of every person there. Human flourishing is multifaceted, and so is human poverty. I was reminded of this profoundly in the Wall Street Journal this week. Harvard economist Raj Chetty was featured in his research. He's done a lot of research presently on the shrinking middle class and the lack of economic mobility for many in our nation, and he points to two data points that are the main contributors. What are they? Two things. 
bad neighborhoods, and bad schools. And he offers, get this, three solutions. I have no idea what this brilliant person's worldview or commitment is. These are the three. Listen carefully. Wiser government policies. Listen to what he says next. Neighborhood churches. And then he says, two-parent families. Church, do we hear it? We say that God designed the church to be the hope of the world. The local church is plan A. There's no plan B. Here's an economist telling us this. Think of what he is saying to us in this moment in time. Do we see the vital importance of the local church for human flourishing and for our city? How are we investing in our local church, in planting churches in our city and helping other local churches to flourish around the globe? This is one of the reasons we are launching nationally Made to Flourish Pastor Network. Also, how are we building stronger marriages and families so that children grow up in a nourishing space with both a mom and a dad? Will we nurture the church? Will we nurture marriages? And will we advocate for those who cannot advocate for themselves in our society? A holistic view looks way beyond material reality. It's not just throwing money at a problem. Money does matter, it does, but it's not all that matters. Think about lottery ball, power lottery ball winners and do the research on what happens to people who win that kind of money. It's not pretty. Lastly, seek to make a difference where God has planted you, would you? First, do good work where you are, whether it's paid or unpaid. Do it well for the glory of God and your neighbor. Give it all you've got for his glory. Don't cut corners. Jim Collins, the great organizational leader where many, many corporations and, and organizations are following his lead, says in one of his brilliant best-selling books, he said, wherever you are, create a pocket of greatness. You don't have to be the boss. You can be anyone in an organization. You can create a pocket of greatness. Does that sound like salt and light Jesus talked about? Secondly, seek the common good in your work. Rabbi Paul, who becomes the Apostle Paul, understood the Old Testament. He understood the whole Old Testament text. He says this to the Galatians, that great text on the gospel. He says this in Galatians chapter 6.10, what? Do good to all people, especially the household of faith. That means the household of faith in the New Testament is the local church. But do good to everyone. One of the most important places you do good is your workplace. I had a conversation recently with a wonderful member of our congregation. His name is Bob. His job is a director of a property management firm here in Kansas City for a publicly traded firm. They have about 10,000 housing units in eight states. His company brings important expertise to the market, and he collaborates this company with the nonprofit sector and the government sector to provide affordable and safe housing for many under-resourced families. And Bob puts it this way, I am sure I made some pension fund in Newark happy. Let me just add, that is really important if you're a retiree. Don't ever dismiss that. But then he says this, but it pales in comparison to driving over to Friendship Village at 56th and Swope and see 144 families that now have respectable, affordable housing that wouldn't be there today if we hadn't been there. 
What kind of culture are you building in your organization? I love Undercover Boss. If we were a bigger organization, I would be an undercover boss at Christ Community. <laughs> what would the top boss say, he or she, if they came and observed you work tomorrow? Lastly, embrace an economics and mutuality. During the last decade or so, very thoughtful people around the globe have been thinking about how to make the free market better. One of them is a think tank out of Oxford University. It's funded by the Mars Corporation. And they're calling the free market economists around the world to embrace a threefold bottom line. Yes, profit is one of them, and that's important. But they say people and planet are also important too. See, the economics of mutuality we're going to press more into in the next couple messages is an acknowledgement of a more complex bottom line than just profit. It's one that remembers that people and the planet must be written into the calculus if profit is to be sustained and the common good is taken seriously. We all have a part to play here. Loving our neighborhoods and seeking the common good are all our responsibility. We were created to work together. But let's not forget what Brian Fickert, that Yale economist, told us at our conference just a couple weeks ago. These wise words, listen carefully, the goal isn't to make this neighborhood like that neighborhood. The goal is to make every neighborhood like the new Jerusalem. None of us here have a utopian, visional dream. We live in a hopeful realism of a messy world, but we have the hope that Jesus will one day return and establish the new heavens and new earth and make everything right, and we will be back in the most beautiful neighborhood imaginable. But we live in the middle of that moment. Now, will we love our neighbors? Will we love our broken neighborhoods as we wait God's coming neighborhood? Let's bloom where we're planted this week, okay? Let's live the gospel in our workplace. Let's share the gospel in our workplace. Let's roll up our sleeves and seek the common good of our neighbors, both in our city and around the globe. You and I were created to work together for the glory of God and the common good of all. Maybe God will lead some of you, just maybe, to start an entrepreneurial enterprise. Watch. Uh, what do I do with most of my day? We, uh, I own a, a creative agency. Um, we, we get the opportunity to work with entrepreneurs and people that are starting new venture ideas, uh, consult with them and collaborate with them, and then work with a team of designers and developers to uh, build web apps, iPhone apps, and, and then try to launch new businesses. We wear multiple hats, and so from an owner's perspective, uh, George and I get to work collaboratively on where we're going, where we're going to take this thing. Uh, my name is George Brooks. I've been coming to Christ Community for just shy of 10 years now. My name is Dan Linhart, and my family and I have been coming to Christ Community for just a little over 10 years. As we work together in a collaborative environment, we're going to trust each other to not only own up to the accountability you have in whatever project you're working on, but we're going to trust each other's specialty as well. There's something amazing to come to our office, and that's why we bring our clients there a lot, is to see programmers, designers, product strategists, business people, project managers all in one room. Um, you come up with a, a wonderful thing, and it's a great solution to that can solve a great problem. So I, I like to use the odd is can will, the kind of four-part gospel. 
if this was the perfect business, you know, the, um, the ought of the business, if this was the perfect business, what would it look like? And the reality is, is there is an is. Um, there's constraints, whether it's budget or time, a bunch of different factors are gonna play into the success of whether or not that business works. And then the can is really, for me in our space, is what can this be? Um, within those constraints, we can do something great, but the best way to do it is to work as close to that ought as we could. And that ought would be really everyone with their different disciplines and their different strengths and gifts coming together for a great result. Work truly is, it's, it's a gift that we've been given to serve others. Um, and I, I love um, in the Old Testament when, when um, God says that I'm blessing you so that uh, you can be a blessing. That's kind of something that's stuck with me. A couple years ago, we worked with a, an entrepreneur um, that had an idea and he was a brilliant man and him and his co-founder were really smart guys. And we were there to really help provide the, the tool, the technology platform that was gonna help their company grow. Um, and again, in entrepreneurship, there's always that opportunity that's just not gonna work. When it does work, when a new company is formed that is solving a problem that actually does exist in the world, that is, it's, it's like magic. We were able to kind of help them set up the pedestal to grow their business. And the last time we met up with them, this is uh, about six months ago or right. so, they had 85 employees, I think, at that particular location. Right. And they had gone global. Well, those are jobs. Those are people now have jobs because of the thing that we helped start. And, and oh, by the way, other businesses are being formed by the money that they're lending. And, mm -hmm. and just that's when it gets really exciting is that there was a right. problem to be solved we were able to be a part of the journey to help solve it. I have a gift, I have a contribution, but it's not the full thing. I, I need to come here and give it to others. And if they're doing the same, that's where truly where we've seen and the clients we worked with and the products we've built, that's truly where the greatness comes from.